Welcome back to another episode of Frogs Insider, the TCU podcast on the Dave Campbell's Texas Football Republic of Football Network. I am Melissa Trebosser, joined as per usual by Jamie Plunkett, trying for a second week in a row to intro the pod to see if I can make up for the utter and complete disaster of my first three minutes and then subsequent 60 minutes of last week's episode was. You're absolutely crushing it so far. I So far, so good, but it is early, Jamie. Um, <laughs> I don't even think we've hit a full minute yet. Uh, it is early, but it is also late um, as I am very tired, so wheels could come off at any moment. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Jamie and I do. Uh, we were both present for Big 12 Media Days. Uh, Jamie and I were both boots on the ground on Wednesday at AT&T Stadium to hear from TCU and an assortment of other Big 12 coaches. I stuck around Thursday, which had to be the most boring day in Conference Media Day <laughs> history. Everyone, including Jamie, had taken off by that point, and it was me, uh, Shahan, and... Um, it might have just been the two of us, as far as I could tell. Everybody else was uh, was was had had booked it for barbecue or something. Even um, even Dean Straka bailed. Oh, Dean was there. Dean oh, was okay. there. I, I, yeah, I was yeah. Like, it's so, not like Dean to miss a media day. It's not like Dean to miss media day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but but we were there on the important day. We were there for for Sunny Dykes, uh, who had some scorching hot realignment takes. Um, and yeah. It got me aggregated. Thanks, Sonny. Um, and Mike Gundy, who had some incredible bedlam uh, takes and just kind of an is no nonsense um, bedlam type Mike Gundy ways. Um, we've got a lot to talk about about the Pac-12 once again, who's back in the news for all of the wrong reasons. We're going to talk a little bit about TCU baseball, who added a new assistant coach, but not necessarily a new assistant coach. Is a guy who's got a ton of experience under his belt. And we'll just touch on Mike Miles and his impressive summer league with the Mavs after a rough first game. Before we get into the business of talking TCU, we've got to get to the business of the podcast. And that means we get to talk about the good brand, Jamie and I's favorite uh, vintage collegiate apparel brand, home field apparel, purveyor of the softest hoodies and t-shirts that either of us have ever owned. We are both rocking proudly some home field apparel this evening. Two of the um, original drop. There's been a secondary drop, which also includes my absolute favorite quarter zip I've ever owned. Uh, You can join in the comfort as well by going to homefieldapparel.com or downloading the app, which gives you some extra special deals on a daily basis. Uh, Use the code FROGSIN15 to get 15% off your 10 purchase. And after you buy your first purchase, you are certain to want to buy more. You can get 10% off every additional purchase by using Frogs in 15 every time you shop with the good brand Homefield Apparel. I got through that. I did okay. You are now yes, muted. That was great yes. because I so, muted because Moose was barking in the background uh, like a dork. And uh, like a dork. yeah, you nailed it. Uh, the co- most comfortable t-shirts I've ever owned. I say it every week. I mean it same with the hoodies. Uh, I have like six home field apparel hoodies at this point. They're all incredibly comfortable. If my furnace hadn't gone out this weekend, you would have probably caught me in a hoodie, even though it's 105 degrees in yeah. Texas right now, um, because they're that comfortable and soft. And we like the AC down low here in the Plunkett household. Yeah. So you are dealing with no AC in the household. I'm dealing with no AC at my workplace. Um, we both are dealing with hundred plus degree weather. Mm-hmm. Life is great. Life is great, Jamie. You know, you know what else is scorching hot? Uh oh, bring it. Give it to me. Transition time. 
Sunny Dykes. Yeah. And Big 12 Media Days. Uh, we have a lot to talk about with Big 12 Media Well, as, as much to talk about as you're going to get to talk about after Media Days, right? It's a lot of coach speak. It's a lot of the same stuff. I, I was talking to one of the one of the reporters in the elevator, and, and one of the security people was asking what exactly was going on downstairs. And, and I told her, I said, it's basically 14 people saying absolutely nothing in a completely different way. And that was true for the most part. Mm-hmm. With the exception of Sunny Dykes, Mike Gundy, and we also got an interesting little nugget on day two from Kalani Sataki, but we'll we'll get there. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's start there. Let's start with the four new teams. This was, sure. yeah. of course, um, a media day that looked different than any Big 12 media day we've ever seen before because it is a Big 14 media day um, as BYU, Houston, Cincinnati, and UCF uh, were officially, I mean, not officially announced, but officially like partaking in Big 12-esque things for the first time. Um Really excited about these four new members. I think there's a lot of reason to be excited. Um, Brett Yormark was was very optimistic. Um, the the coaches were very united in talking about how strong this league was, um, how excited they are to have these new members and what they think they can do. Jamie, any anything stand out to you from some of these new members or some of the coaches, players that you talked to? I loved how. BYU's coach uh, Kalani Sataki got through like three questions on his first. First of all, very nervous, shake voice, hardcore, because as he admitted to the room, he had never been a part of a media day before, yeah. right? BYU's been an independent for so long that he's never had to go through this whole kind of circus of events before. And he was nervous getting up there and talking to that many people all at the same time to the point where there was a lull in the questions I think three or four questions and he got asked. And then it was just like this really kind of uncomfortable silence. And he's sitting up there. He goes, Nope, anything, no, no other questions. Can I go eat now? Let's go eat. And <laughs> let's go eat. And he just starts talking about how hungry he is and wanting more food. And honestly, I've never felt more uh, relatable to yeah. a, a college football coach than in that moment where the guy's just like, yeah, I'm pretty hungry right now. I could go, I could go for a snack or something. So uh, shout out to Kalani Sataki for, providing some levity to a super, super serious fake serious kind of situation with media days where everybody's, uh, you know, kind of preening and and making themselves look as good as possible. You know, I think the most interesting thing that Kalani Sataki, and he didn't do this at the main press conference, but one of the breakout sessions, he admitted that he had reached out to a former TCU football coach, Gary Patterson, to get some information about the transition from the Mountain West Conference to the Big 12 and and what that might look like for him, what it might look like for his program. He didn't reveal a lot of how that conversation went. I'd be very curious to know what what Gary said. I, I'm going to assume that he was uh, said something maybe about beating TCU, uh, but uh, it's it's interesting, you know, obviously very different programs in very different places coming into this league, but uh, really smart as to talk. He does, did not coach against Gary Patterson um, to reach out to a guy that has made that jump from that conference, um, you know, even though BYU's obviously been an independent here, uh, to see what it was going to take to be able to compete at a high level, because as we all remember, TCU in relatively short order became fairly successful, especially in the recruiting front in the Big 12 Conference. Yeah, you know, he's one of the few that have, have done it, you know, I, and to get that kind of value, valuable information from a guy who's been through that process is going to help Sataki and BYU in ways that you probably can't measure. Um, on the other hand, though, you know, one of the other four schools in this situation has a coach who has been in this scenario before in Houston and Dana Holgerson because mm-hmm. Holgo was the head coach at West Virginia when they transitioned from the Big East to the Big 12. So this is his second time 
going through this process. He also spoke on um, the first day of media days was his typical kind of Holgerson self kind of aloof and and not, not terribly standoffish with the media, but you can just get the sense that he would rather be almost anywhere Anywhere. else on the planet, maybe with his pallets of Red Bull, uh, you know, in the comfort of his own home with all of his, all of his Red Bull. But uh, you know, I thought, I thought he, did a great job of, of, you know, handling all of those questions about transition, talked about his time at West Virginia um, and, and really just kind of emphasized how important it was for Houston to get back to this level of football with teams from the state of Texas uh, in a conference that regionally makes a lot of sense with some rivalries that have kind of gone by the wayside uh, and and the opportunity that presents for the university of Houston, you know, so for, for a guy that is, maybe sitting on a little bit of a warmer seat than he would like at this point in his tenure at Houston. Um, At least handled day one of his media responsibilities really well. Yeah. I think, you know, Houston is, has got to be one of the most fascinating um, teams because when you look at what they've done in recent history, obviously had a little bit of a a down year there sprinkled in, but they've had a couple of really nice runs. They've had some success. Um, You know, they've, they've competed for AAC championships. Maybe they don't have quite the depth that they're going to need to be competitive in, in year one, but they certainly aren't far off from being able to to field a team that might be able to uh, kind of finish in the, in the middle um, to, to top half of the big 12 here in the next two to three years. So having whole, you know, Hogel's seat is certainly hot. Um, it's certainly warm. He's probably safe this year, no matter what happens. Um, but he's a guy that's going to be coaching for his job more than likely in pretty short order. So it's going to be fun to see what they can do. Of course, their very first big 12 game is against TCU down in Houston. Um, it'll be the site of the big 12 homecoming. That should be a, a night game. That should be a, a really fun time. Um, I, I think there'll be a lot of enthusiasm from the Cougar fan base around that one. And it's certainly a little extra juice to want to beat TCU. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, everybody's going to want to beat TCU this year because sure. TCU beat everybody last year. Right. And yeah. so there's, yeah. there's that opportunity to, to knock off a team that was in the national championship. That's going to provide, I think, a lot of juice for folks coming into Fort Worth or, or hosting the frogs, wherever they, wherever they are. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think another team that's got a lot of juice, um, and I think they get the award for, uh, best SID marketing materials presented to media members, um, during the big 12 conference is UCF. Uh, they had a great little one sheet, like a two-sided, really beautiful graphic that they, they handed out to every media member, um, at all the tables, uh, UCF, Gus Malzahn, I think we forget about Gus. We forget that, you know, he's had a lot of success. I certainly forget that he is the coach at UCF now. He's got a really, really good offense. He's got a veteran quarterback that if he can stay healthy, John Reese Pumley can can do a lot of things on the football field that have proven can win you a lot of games in, in the Big 12 style of offense. Uh, the defense might be a problem this year, but I think they're going to score a lot of points. They've got really nice running backs. I was listening to our good friends, Grant McGalliard and Parker Fleming and the Purple Theory podcast. Their uh, UCF preview dropped this week, also on the Republic of Football Network. Uh, they've got talent at all of the skill positions on offense, and their offensive line is is not terrible they might make some noise pretty early and are probably going to be the team that, that wins the most games that people don't expect them to of those four teams, those four newcomers. It's possible. It's possible. I I'm, I want to see how well John Reese Plumley throws in a league that's got better secondaries than he was facing in the AAC. Yeah. Um, we know his talents as a runner. He's obviously an incredible running quarterback. Like you said, they've got some really good running backs in the backfield as well. Um, 
but I, I want to see how dynamic that passing game is uh, coming into this season. I think I, I can't remember where I put them. I put them around like somewhere in the eight to 10 range in my poll. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I, I would not be surprised if, if they were the winningest of the four newcomers this season, just because of the depth they've got. Malzahn's played in a power coach in a power five conference before. Frankly, a lot of his players have transferred into UCF from power five conferences. Mm-hmm. So they understand what it takes to compete at this level of football. And, like you said, UCF's been a winning program for a long time now. Uh, they have their NCAA-recognized 2017 National okay. Championship that they talk about all the time. So yeah. uh, very much looking forward to them uh, being the the best representation of space in the Big mm-hmm. 12 this mm-hmm. upcoming season. Oh, um, you've thrown out Houston right yeah, away there, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, UCF claimed it, and if you claim it, then you get it, right? That's kind of squatter's Wait rights. On. So I guess maybe they're a really good re- uh, replacement for Oklahoma, the Sooners at at, uh, oh. at this oh. point in time. Uh, anyways, um, the final of the four Big Twelve newcomers, Cincinnati. Yes, uh, I just love your note in in the run sheet. <laughs> just says oof. <laughs> One yeah. scholarship player remains from opener a season ago. What did you learn about Cincinnati from day two of the of the Big Twelve media days? Yeah, absolutely nothing. Um, of of all of. <laughs> Like, where's the juice, man? That's what I learned. Like, Cincinnati is not that far removed from being a playoff team. And obviously, they had, you know, a a group of five generational talent at quarterback and Desmond Ritter. They had uh, Sauce Gardner, who is is one of the best corners in the NFL today. I mean, they had some talent. Those guys have matriculated on to bigger and better things. But my God, man, what happened? Luke Fickle just left this year. It's not like he's been gone. How did things fall off so hard and so fast for the Bearcats? Um, I mean, yeah, you hired a guy that nobody was enthusiastic about. I, you know, I mean, Scott Satterfield was trying as hard as he possibly could to get out of Louisville. And he, he, you know, he had his sights set on Cincinnati for quite a while. And Cincinnati just seemed content to take the guy that really wanted to be there. And, you saw, you know, the players kind of spoke with with the transfer portal and and got out of there. Yeah. I mean, he had to replace what twenty one players in the portal yeah. this offseason, plus losing a big graduating class, and and that's just that's a challenge for any incoming coach is retention of your own players, right? We saw that with Sonny Dykes mm-hmm. before last season. He spent when he from when he got here a couple of weeks before the early signing period in twenty twenty one till the first snap of the season in twenty twenty two. All he did was meet with players in their homes, meet players' families. I'm I'm sure that guy ate and drank so much food and coffee yeah. in the homes of players uh, with their parents, like just doing everything he could could to keep the roster together while he was trying to put together a recruiting class, while he was trying to fill some gaps on the roster in the transfer portal. Uh, you saw, I think, a as good an effort as you could have seen from Sonny Dykes. And then you also have this example of Scott Satterfield's experience a couple months on the job at Cincinnati to kind of counter that and to really explore the differences in, in what's happened in those two scenarios. Um, and it's night and day. It's night and yeah. day. There's a reason that Sonny Dykes had the success he had in year one, and a lot of it was keeping the guys in Fort Worth. And now we're going to see what the results are going to be like for Cincinnati when Scott Satterfield let a lot of this roster get away. 
It's going to be a race to the bottom between uh, Cincinnati and Scott Satterfield and Neil Brown and West Virginia, right? Uh, and I, if I you look at those rosters, I would rather have West Virginia's as much as they kind of are the universal pick to finish. I mean, I think they, I can't remember if Cincinnati or West Virginia was picked last, but those are universally. Yeah. So, so pick to finish last. I still think they have a better roster and a better chance for success um, on the field than Cincinnati does. That's, that's going to be a tough, tough spot. Um, it, it's, there's going to be a big wake up call for the Bearcats who had, had been at the highest of highs, not that long ago, um, but the transition into big 12 play, somebody's got to be last. Um, and, and I think I would, I would take my chances with West Virginia over Cincinnati right now. I agree. I would too. Um, I picked Cincinnati to finish last. I think you did as well. And West yep. Virginia one spot above them at 13. But uh, speaking of who you'd prefer to play, hmm. Melissa, Sonny Dykes had some thoughts on who Texas and Oklahoma would prefer to play when they move to the sec next year he had some really good thoughts on realignment you were there to listen to a lot of it what was your reaction to what sunny dykes had to say my immediate reaction when he started talking was my first thought was oh my gosh i can't wait to tweet this out my second thought was am i going to get in trouble if i tweet this out uh, i was waiting all afternoon for for the text uh from from the tcu comms just of like uh but but it was i mean it was there it was on video it was vocal i the, really the the other thing that was kind of going through my mind in, in these moments were holy cow how united is this group of big 12 coaches uh that really stood out to me really all week and before we get into sunny's takes i mean i, I just kind of want to touch on that to the point to where even Brent Venables was talking about how much he loves the Big 12, how it's the first place he played, it's the first place he coached, how he's really going to miss the conference, how they're set up for success. He sounded like a guy who was not excited about the move to the SEC. And I think what Sonny Dyke says kind of touches on the why of that. Um, but this coaching, this group of coaches, they seem to genuinely like each other. Um, it's, it's, I'm sure there's going to be some frenemies in there, but for the most part, they're very supportive of each other and they're very supportive of the conference. I mean, and that speaks again, just to Brett Yormark and what he's built. There's a camaraderie. Uh, there is an us against the world mentality. There's a giant chip on this conference's shoulder right now. Um, and it makes it really fun to hear the cockiness, frankly, that these guys were speaking with at big 12 media days. Um, and as Sunny started talking uh, that I can't remember exactly what the question was that was asked, but it was kind of in the new age of college football with realignment with all the transfer portal, all the things are changing, you know, how do you feel about that? And while acknowledging that TCU is a benefit has benefited from realignment, he also talked about how uh, kind of as these rounds continue Programs are leaving conferences with historical rivalries, with geographic footprints that make sense, with all of the things in order to chase the almighty dollar. And, you know, he specifically name dropped to Missouri and Texas A&M, who both bolted the Big 12 for the quote unquote greener pastures of the SEC. And both of whose programs have struggled um, under the enormity of the weight of playing in that conference. Now, Missouri made a couple of SEC championship games early. Texas A&M hasn't necessarily done any worse than they did in the Big 12, but they certainly haven't done any better. And it's cost them a lot more money. But his line was basically, you know, you can go four and eight and say, but we made a lot of money and that's enough for some teams. And then he kind of put the little, little dotted the I across the T at the end by saying, I don't know about you guys, but I can't wait for that natural rivalry between UCLA and Rutgers. That's going to be a fun one. And, and kind of closed it out with that. And uh, it, it was, it was quite a moment from Sonny. I mean, he's one of the most 
you know, congenial, well-liked coaches in the country. Everybody talks about what a great guy is, what a great personality he has. I have not really seen him kind of coming out throwing daggers like that in, in the short time that that we've gotten to know him. Uh, it was said with no pretense, with no shade. It was said with a completely straight face. And I was, frankly, I was overjoyed to see him come out guns blazing a little bit there. I was too. And he wasn't the only one, though, dunking on uh, realignment. Big 12 Deputy Commissioner um tim weiser also took a shot and he took a shot directly at texas and oklahoma he didn't really skirt around it at all he said i think their decision was more about affiliating with a group of schools they would rather get beat by alabama than kansas state or florida than iowa state which uh feels very on brand for how sec schools in the lower third of the conference tend to tout the overall yeah. strength of the SEC versus their own individual universities' accomplishments. Um, and at least for the early going, you know, I don't think that Oklahoma's in a great position to find some yeah. early success in the league. Texas, uh, as we say all the time uh, on this show and other shows, like they do less with more than most any other school in the country at this point. Um, it's astounding that they haven't won the big 12 in 14 years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, even though they're preseason favorites to do it this year, you know, they, I mean, what's, what's to say they'll actually go and do that. Um, and it, it's, it, it, there's, I think a little bit of sharpness to the things that Sonny and, and Tim Weiser and some of the other folks are saying, obviously Mike Gundy has his thoughts about Bedlam. He's echoed that same sentiment two years in a row at media days now um, where he says, you know, it's, it's, you know, it is what it is basically and, and fires off some more quips about it. But um, I think part of the sharpness comes from the fact that there is a precedent for a lack of success when it comes to realigning into the SEC. And, uh, you know, I, I, people people will say, oh, well, TCU realigned as well and they benefited from it financially. And yes, they absolutely, absolutely. did. And they got to play schools that they were in a conference with for almost 100 years in the Southwest conference. So, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a difference there. Same could be said for Houston, right? Houston's rolling yeah. back into a conference with three other schools from the, from the state of Texas that they used to play annually and that they haven't been able to play in the last 30 years. Um, and well, so this- I, I enjoy that. I enjoy yeah. that. There's also, you can't really compare what TCU is doing to what Oklahoma and Texas are doing. TC or Houston or UCF or or Cincinnati, BYU. These are schools that are going from the quote unquote group of five from a lower level and having access now to the funds that being part of a power five conference do have the media, the, the power five. And obviously there's more money. Maybe there's more exposure for going to the SEC. Um, But it's really hard to argue that they are making a progressive move for the betterment of their athletics programs versus making a progressive move for the betterment of their bottom line. I mean, especially the USC UCLA uh, move that there is nothing about that that makes sense other than cash more checks. Like maybe USC is going to be more competitive. Maybe they're going to win more in the big 10 because it is a little bit weaker, but at the same time, like this is all about the almighty dollar um, at these universities. And it's really impossible to argue that it's anything but that Um, maybe one of these schools will prove us wrong. But Mm -hmm. like you said, between Texas and Oklahoma, does anybody think that they're going to improve on their aggregate of their last five year winning percentage once they go to the SEC? 
Probably not, especially Oklahoma. Um, Texas, you know, it's going to be a lot like Texas A&M. You haven't done a whole heck of a lot, despite the fact you've had more resources than anyone else imaginable. Are you going to go to the quote unquote tougher conference and do more? It, it's going to be we'll, we'll believe it when we see it, I guess. Right. I guess so. I guess so. I will say the the one school that I think maybe hasn't had the on-field results that they've wanted, but I, I truly believe has fully as a university benefited from realignment is Nebraska, right? Because mm. Nebraska fit in so well with so many Big Ten schools. Yeah. From an AAU perspective, I know they're not AAU any anymore. Don't come at me. They're not. They're still an R1 school. They're still an incredible research school, whatever. They haven't had the results because they hired a guy who liked golf more than football mm-hmm. in the past few years, but and other things as well. But, you know, I think from a financial perspective, obviously Nebraska is better off than they were from a university perspective. They are more, they are more frankly aligned with Iowa and Illinois and Wisconsin. Uh, And they're going to hate Nebraska fans are going to hate that. I said that they're aligned with Iowa more than they are with, you know, Kansas and TCU and Baylor and Texas tech. Like it's just, that's, that's the reality of it. Now, Losing the Oklahoma-Nebraska rivalry sucked. Losing Nebraska-Colorado really sucked. And there was a clear benefit to a school like Nebraska moving on to the Big Ten. Beyond financial, like you were saying, beyond the financial benefit, there's not really a benefit to Oklahoma moving. They're losing their they're losing one of their biggest rivalries. They're their only in-state rivalry. You know, they're probably not going to have the level of success that they had in the Big 12, which they have dominated for yeah. the last decade and a half. You know, Texas, they're getting a rivalry back in Texas A&M. But other than that, they don't even want to play that game. Yeah, not not right? even a rivalry that anyone outside of a couple – and not even most of the fan base doesn't want to play Texas A&M. It doesn't exactly. Like. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, there, there are definitely layers to, to realignment. I love that coaches are starting to talk about it more and get a little bit more snippy with it. Um, and I really do think that what Sonny Dykes had to say about realignment rang true. I mean, he, he was honest and he, I, he hit it on the head. Yeah, it, it was, it was, that was like the best part about media days, I think was just, again, these coaches coming from a place of with Texas and Oklahoma taking, you know, kind of their giant presence out of the conference. There's obviously negatives to that. Uh, there's negatives to the eyeballs, et cetera, et cetera. But all of these coaches kind of feel like they're all on level playing ground with each other now. And it, and it gives them kind of this us against the world mentality that it's going to be really fun to watch up until kickoff starts. And then, and then they'll be about themselves, but there was definitely a, a unified front that I was kind of surprised to see. And it, it was fun to, to listen to these guys talk about their conference and their commissioner. Um, nobody is more happy with their commissioner right now than the big 12. Um, if you take just, mm-hmm. you know, the plane, uh, just the accumulation of wealth that the SEC and Big Ten have done out of it. Nobody's doing more for for their sports. Nobody's doing more for their coaches. Nobody's doing more to grow their brand. I mean, even just the rebrand that the Big Twelve launched to, uh, with the the kind of the the darker logo with the different colors from all of the universities. Very subtle, very modern. Everything that Brett Yormark is doing. I mean, they were they're going to Rucker Park tomorrow with basketball coaches. They'll be in Mexico City. They'll be in Canada. I mean, there there's some really really cool unique things happening with this conference that other other coaches would be or other leagues would be happy to say that they came up with first and and Brett Yormark is kind of beating them to the punch time and time again. 
He has. And we talked about this on the last episode in the last couple episodes. It pays to be aggressive in markets like this. It pays mm-hmm. to be aggressive in climates where things are unstable because the reality in college football and college athletics as a whole is that if you are not growing, you are dying. Yeah. If you are not getting ahead, you are getting left behind. And the Pac-12 had the perfect opportunity two years ago to get ahead of the Big 12 by taking some of the Big 12 members. I was talking to someone at Big 12 Media Days this year who said that as late as a as early recently as a year ago, the Pac-12 was still reaching out to multiple Big 12 schools to try and get them to come over to mm-hmm. the Pac-12, but in a way that was like well, yeah, let us get this TV stuff figured out and kind of like a keeping them warm, keeping them on the line yeah. kind of situation where that might have worked two years ago, but you got to pull the trigger before Brett Yormark gets in here. And even before he was officially on the job, August 1 of 2022 was firing at the hip yep. uh, you know, to the media, to anybody who would listen about what he was going to do to keep the Big 12 in as good a shape as possible from a media rights perspective, from a realignment perspective. He came in on August 1 and already had all of his ducks in a row. And George Klievkoff just never... uh, Yes, he was handed an absolute dumpster fire of a mess by Larry Scott, but he also has not been as aggressive as he should have been to this point as commissioner of the Pac-12. So, you know, you you get... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, you talk about that. And one of the things that your Mark talks about, he even mentioned that had he not signed the media deal when he did, he didn't think he'd get the same deal today. You know, mm-hmm. that, that it would not have been as good of a deal. And the Pac-12, the longer this drags out, the worse it's going to be for them, the worse position yeah. they are for the future. Yeah, because any 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 organization that signs them to a media rights deal now, the alternative is not having to spend any money. Yeah. And we see what's happening with Disney right now and and the layoffs that are happening at ESPN, the layoffs that are happening at the New York Times with cutting their entire uh, sports department and just, you know, going from a unionized desk to a non-union athletic to provide their sports coverage. And just the world of sports coverage is changing so dramatically so quickly that, yeah, you got to lock it in and you got to do it quickly. Um, because like you said, if you don't do it now, you're going to get less later. And then the back 12 is now less than a year from not having any media, right. Any yeah. media rights deal at all. And so you're, you're, I mean, I like, I, I, I have for this entire process tried to not get into the doom and gloom pack 12 is going to fall apart and not exist anymore kind of conversation. Cause I always thought it was wildly unrealistic. I was also very skeptical that realignment would ever actually happen. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> rarely does it ever to work out the way the rumors say it will in situations like this, but the closer we get to July 1st, 2024 with no new media rights deal for the pack 12, the more realistic it becomes that not only are Arizona and Colorado not in the Pac-12 this year, next year, but that there are no Pac-12 teams in the Pac-12 next mm-hmm. year because they don't have anything that continues to hold them together. Yeah, it's it's incredibly concerning. You know, when you talk about kind of the state of college football and the changes, having a, a conference that has so much to offer outside of football. But, you know, has great Olympic sports, has, you know, national championships and so many other sports, has such a great academic. And I know that's part of the problem people have with them is their academic prestige and kind of their, you know, turning their nose up at everybody else. But uh, these are great universities. These are historically important universities. Um, it, it would not be 
good for the sports long-term, good for college athletics long-term for the Pac-12 to completely dissolve, but it almost feels inevitable that that's where we're headed. I think so. I think so. And I don't know if it happens in 2024 or 2030 or whenever, but I do think that just West Coast sports in general are becoming less and less of a commodity. And like you said, you don't only see that in football. Kind of transition into some baseball talk here right now. The Pac-12 has been getting absolutely decimated in the transfer portal when it comes to college baseball. They've Mm -hmm. had uh, a handful of top players at Stanford, at Oregon, at Arizona, at Arizona State all enter the portal and Portal East start heading towards the SEC, start heading towards the ACC. Um, you know, a couple guys uh, are, are in the Big 12 now at Tech in Texas. TCU's talking to a couple guys from the West Coast. Like, there, there are there's a almost mass exodus when it comes to baseball players wanting to get further east because that's where the eyeballs are. That's where the big fan bases are. That's where the money is from an NIL perspective. And when you roll all of that in, that's, that's not unique to college baseball right now in the PAC 12. That's kind of symbolic of how the, the entire conference is going football, basketball as well. Um, That doesn't make it easier to get media rights done when all of your really good competitive players and some of your coaches, another segue that I'm teeing up here in a moment are leaving the PAC 12 for quote unquote, greener pastures elsewhere, right? Like, just for an example, I know this is anecdotal, but Stanford's one of Stanford's best players this year, Braden Montgomery, a two-way player. He's, he was a great pitcher, an incredible outfielder, a phenomenal bat, um, hit the portal, and he's from Mississippi, right? Yeah. So Stanford, Stanford did the hard work. Uh, hard work. I mean, it's Stanford, right? Who doesn't want to yeah. go there? But did the hard work of getting this kid to move 1,500 miles, 2,000 miles away from home in southern Mississippi to play baseball on the West coast in Stanford, California, get in Palo Alto, whatever. (laughs) It's all liberal West anyways, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, in Palo Alto to uh, play baseball, get an elite degree. And he's not even going to get his degree from there because he's transferring out and he's probably going to end up back in the state of Mississippi at either Mississippi state or Ole Miss, or maybe even Vandy where he can get another really good private school education, But also, or maybe play. LSU and win a college World Series championship, right? Or- so he could contend for a national championship, or still get a, a a really really good private school education. But either way, he's going to be playing in front of six to ten thousand people a night, yeah. and he's probably you know if he had stayed at Stanford or wherever he ends up, he's probably going to be a top ten draft pick in twenty twenty four. And instead of saying Stanford on his bio for everybody else to see on MILB.com and, and for the rest of his career, it's going to say LSU or Vandy or one of the Mississippi schools. And, you know, that's not good for recruiting down the road when you start to turn into a developmental league for other leagues in the same at the same level of your sport. Well, and I think baseball is a little bit unique in that, you know, I don't know that a guy like that that's that good that's going to be a top 10 draft pick is ever going to, I don't think he's worried about getting his degree. And so why would you stay at Stanford, work as hard as you have to work? Because Stanford, some of these elite institutions absolutely change what they do for athletes. Not all of them do. And Stanford mm-hmm. really doesn't do much. And so that might that might be a negative for a school like Stanford um, too, is that, if you know you're this good, you've gotten yourself this good and that you're probably why, why do you want to work that hard at school when you don't necessarily have to? And I don't want to poo poo Old Miss or Mississippi State um, or even Vanderbilt, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. But it's certainly a different academic expectation, um, you know, coming from a, a public university than a Stanford 
Um, Vanderbilt's definitely comparable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that that degree is as much of a carrot for guys once they get yeah. to that that level of being that good. And like you said, you can go play in front of six, 10,000 fans. You're going to get more eyeballs. You've got a, a, I mean, Stanford was a college world series team, but hasn't been able to do much once they get to Omaha, but they've consistently been a winning program. That That is an unfortunate thing when you see programs that do their job on the field, can't keep their elite players. Now, Stanford benefited very, very much from a, one of the most ridiculous plays I've ever yeah. seen happen in the super regional sure. this year. They, they yeah. did, they got to Omaha. They played well. Don't hear and me saying been, they didn't they've deserve been to be there, to Omaha but, the last Right. And they've been to years. Omaha the last several years. Um, you mentioned something though, about schools not bending their academics to accommodate players. That's a, a better segue than the one that I was trying to set up to talk about TCU's new baseball coach into another topic that I wanted to I, talk about on the podcast tonight. I thought I, thought I um, might, I might be able to feed you that one a little bit You did a great there. job. Yeah. You teed me up better than I teed myself up when I was golfing on Saturday afternoon. I'll say that much right now. And uh, so Chase Burns, elite pitcher, entered the portal from Tennessee. We had mentioned him on the podcast a couple episodes ago. Um, I believe at that time I said TCU was the front runner and that things looked really good for him to get to TCU. Since then, uh, last, I believe it was Friday afternoon, so three, four days ago at the time of recording this podcast, Chase Burns committed to Wake Forest. Here's what happened between then and now. Chase Burns was interested in TCU. He wanted to come to TCU. He thought that TCU could be the place for him. As he was getting further down the road of having conversations with a lot of different coaches, because a lot of kids, a lot of guys wanted Chase Burns on their team. He's a 3.8 GPA kid who throws 102 miles an hour. Um, going to rep your university for his entire pro career, which barring injuries is probably going to be pretty long. Uh, he's going to be a wonderful ambassador to your university wherever he ends up going. Based on his experiences at Tennessee, not only on the baseball team getting moved out of the rotation and into the bullpen, but being part of a larger public university, uh, feeling like he was getting swept up in the student body a little bit, realized, hey, I would probably benefit more from being at an elite baseball school still, because Tennessee qualifies, I believe, as that, mm -hmm. but also benefiting from maybe a smaller student body, private school um, you know, community. And so immediately that kind of narrows the field a little bit for where Chase Burns is really looking at going to school okay, is that going to be a TCU? Is that going to be a Vandy if he wants to stay in the SEC? Is it going to be a school like Wake Forest? Is he going to go out to the West Coast and play for a Stanford, something like that? Well, he, before taking most of his visits, again, having a lot of conversations with coaches and, and people close to him, had kind of narrowed his sights down to TCU, Vanderbilt, and Wake Forest. Um, Georgia was still a little bit in the mix there late as well as West Johnson got on campus and started getting things rolling. Uh, Texas entered the conversation for a brief moment as well. LSU just right off the top gave him the biggest NIL offer of any other school. Huh. So Shocker. which is shocking, right? Hey, it worked for them last yep. year. I'm not yes, going to hate did. the game. It's not my money. Yep. Um, but just right then and there, you know, okay, well, if he's not at LSU this year, then it really truly meant that it wasn't all about NIL with him, right? Because if it was all about NIL, you're just going to take the biggest offer. He would be yeah. an LSU tiger right now. That's, that's the simple math. That's the simple logic that gets you from point A to point B when you're doing that thought exercise. So anybody out there who's still saying, Oh, well, it's an NIL thing. He wanted more money. That's why he went to wake. You're joking yourself because if he wanted the most money he could possibly get, he would have been at LSU, maybe Georgia, 
maybe Georgia, but 99% it would, he would be at LSU right now. So that sidebar to get back on track with the Chase Burns story, TCU caps the number of credits that they allow students to transfer in. They cap that at 64. That's important because when you look at how TCU recruits players out of the portal, not just for baseball, but also for basketball and also for football and for every other sport, they have to take into consideration the fact that their university caps the number of credits that transfer in. Beyond that, student athletes, if they are not transferring in as a graduate student, have to show academic progress towards a specific degree. And they have to be on track with that degree based on a certain number of years that they have been in school and a certain number of hours that they've had to accrue towards their overall degree. So for a guy like Chase Burns, who's entering in as a rising junior, first of all, he had 64 credits exactly at Tennessee. So congratulations, they all transfer in, right? It wasn't just the number of credits that was the problem. The problem is TCU didn't offer a degree that was close enough to what he was doing at Tennessee, which was recreation and sports management for all of his major specific credits to transfer into a major at TCU, which meant that even though he, all of his 64 credits like fit under that cap, that hard cap that TCU has set, which is a TCU decision to do that kind of thing, an admissions decision. And you can't fault them for that, right? That's a standard practice of higher education, private universities who are trying to improve the academic standing of their school is to do something like this. Vanderbilt does it too. But he had, so about a third of his credits did not quote unquote transfer in because of the major issue there, the conundrum there between figuring out what his major was going to be. The threshold for getting him in was 50 credits. It was 50 hours. Ugh. The lack of major uh, alignment dropped him down to 43. And so in order for him to get into school at TCU, he was going to have to take two summer classes mm. between now and the start of the fall semester mm. to get where he needed to be to be on pace to earn a degree as what would qualify as a junior. Right. And I know you just said it, and I think you nailed it with degrees don't necessarily matter to the elite players in this sport. Like Chase Burns is going to get an $8 million bonus check next year yeah. when he gets drafted two or three overall in the, in the MLB draft. It's not about actually acquiring the degree to him, but because these kids are still student athletes, the NCAA requires them to show progress towards a degree. It makes total sense. Yeah. Because 99, what's the what's the commercial? 99% of our student yeah. athletes go pro go and something pro and else. Something other than sports. Right? Exactly. And so that was the issue at TCU was they could not, and they tried so many different things. Yeah. They tried so many different things to try and get him to his hours to fit into a major. They just couldn't make it happen. And that that happens. The same exact thing happened at Vanderbilt. The same exact thing happened at Vanderbilt with Chase Burns. And so he ends up at Wake Forest who happened to have a design your own major degree uh, plan. And so he gets in there and he, he's now going to probably do something along those lines. They have another kind of more basic uh, business administration that's not lo loaded up with finance courses and all that kind of stuff. 
um, an elite academic institution. Don't get me wrong. Wake Forest yeah. is like a top 30 university in the country, according to most rankings. Um, but they had the courses necessary to accommodate his degree and the progress that he was making. And so Wake Forest gets Chase Burns, which so the is lesson. Yes. As I say, the lesson here, kids, is either pick a major that translates to every university instead of something kind of obscure and weird, or every university that has good athletics needs to design your own major major. Look, I mean, I look, I read up on it and I don't like I don't know 100 percent if that's what he's going to be doing at Wake. I know that there were a couple options for him there, but that major just reading about it i'm like hey that's yeah you have to have two you have to have two faculty advisors that help you plan out your courses and figure out what this is like what this is good for in the real world and they they kind of track along with you this whole time and it's not a slacker slacker thing by any stretch of the imagination some of the elite liberal arts universities actually don't allow you to declare a major and they you sit down with your advisors and you kind of build your own thing i can't remember which of there's in that like elite eight universities like the co or whatever in the northeast they do that too so no it, it definitely is more work it's more work for the university but it's a better joke if we act like it's a a slacker major so we go yeah, for sure. the jokes here yeah for sure i mean look tcu does have a physical education degree the and need the, 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 but, teachers but, no but hey the thing about tcu's pe degree is that you're you've, you're still taking kinesiology classes yeah. at the four thousand level for sure uh, right and they have a like a sports management degree but you're taking, you know, finance and other classes up to a 4,000 level in those. Yeah. They have a an athletic trainer's degree, mm-hmm. but that's also kinesiology up yep. to the 4,000 level. And if you haven't been doing that base coursework, then none of your credits are going to transfer in. And so yep. that's the challenge. And this isn't the first time this has happened for TCU, for baseball yeah. or for football. Football's yeah. encountered this challenge a couple of times too. This is why normally when you see guys transfer into TCU, you're seeing them transfer in younger not a lot of incoming uh, rising seniors yeah. are going to come to TCU because they lose so many hours in the transfer credit process. So that's just, it is what it, it is. It sucks. They did their best to try and figure it out. Um, or we could very well be sitting here talking about Chase Burns being a TCU yeah. Horn Frog. Before I learned about this hang up, if 24 seven did crystal balls for college baseball. I would have put one in for chase uh, for, for yeah. Burns to TCU. And people should not get upset at TCU for not bending their rules for one player. Um, I, I think it's important to, to be the academic institution that you are. Um, there's a lot of people that go to TCU that don't play sports. Um, it, it would be great if they could just get anybody in that they want at any time. But um, part of TCU's draw for a lot of these student athletes is the academics. And while it's not, you know, necessarily in in the Wake Forest top thirty category, there's still a, a degree that means something um, and should be. And not that tennis, you, you know what I mean. Like we don't have to go into all the semantics there. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you can't you can't expect to just be able to you know look the other way for anybody that wants to come to TCU with the hopes that they're going to contribute to your athletics program. Um, there are the standards; those are the rules. They're frustrating for sure, but um, you know they've they've got to be consistent with how they deal with student athletes as well as regular students. I don't know. I I, I hear that argument. I also think that students, athletes, or otherwise who want to pursue the degrees that TCU currently offers, they would be under no obligation not to if TCU did offer something along the lines of 
uh, a design your own matrix. Oh, we'll do that. Course. Yeah. Yeah. If that it was in existence, that changes the conversation. But I'm saying sure. not just don't just turn and look the other way for Chase Burns and, and gotcha. Yeah. No, of course. Yeah. Of course. But are there yeah. things that TCU could do just holistically sure. to be for more sure. welcoming to, to situations like this? Yes. Will they? Probably not. No, no. So. Well, and that's that's the that's the new world of of college athletics too. I think that that's so interesting is because mm-hmm. transfers are such a larger percentage of your roster. And a, a guy like Kirk Sarlu, Sunny Dykes, and uh, Mark Campbell over women's basketball, Jamie Dixon, have all shown that they're willing to go out and get guys um, and gals to to come fill those rosters. You wonder if we're going to start to see some of those those incremental changes that make it a little bit easier for for folks to come on later in their careers to TCU. Yeah, yeah, uh, but. You know, grad transfer is a totally different story, by yep. the way. So when you yeah. see guys like uh, the Ole Miss transfer, Peyton Chattagnier or Colt Taylor or last year, Austin Davis coming in, Sam Stoutenborough coming into the baseball program, like those are all grad transfer guys, which means they've got degree in hand. They can come in and do their thing. Josh Newton is an example of that for football, who has said on the record, by the way, that he entered the portal after the the fall semester and was looking around yeah. and realized he would have lost a ton of credits had he tried to transfer at that point in time and would have been set back in his degree, ended up staying at Louisiana Monroe for the spring, went through spring ball, even though he knew he wasn't going to play there, obviously, because he was graduating, got his degree in hand at the end of May and then transferred to TCU and got on campus in the summer. He so, is a I mean, smart, he is a so, smart kid, like, man. That is a are, savvy dude. Yes. And there are, so there are examples of it not working out for transfers getting into TCU. And there are examples of how guys have, finished what they were doing at their previous university and then getting on campus at TCU and having success as well. So uh, it's, it's a frustrating situation for sure. I know that the folks around TCU baseball were a little bit frustrated with it, but they're still putting together a pretty dang good recruiting class. They've got guys like Peyton Tolley and and Ben Hampton and Zach Coyer coming into pitch that are going to do, do great things uh, as well as a couple outfielders and infielders as well. So uh, still putting together a, a really impressive transfer portal class, even though Chase Burns won't be a part of it. Yep, agreed. Someone that will be a part of CC baseball in the fall, Jamie, uh, mm-hmm. new coach on the staff. Tell us yes. about Dave Lawn. Dave Lawn, long time, long time assistant coach in college baseball, mostly out in the Pac-12. A lot of his time has been spent in California. So if you can see the connection there from the state of California to Kirk Sarlos to TJ Bruce, both guys that have crossed paths with Dave Lawn pretty consistently over the past 20 years or so. Uh, But Lon comes with 25 years of D1 assistant coach experience. His last eight seasons, he's been at the University of Arizona. He spent the last several seasons there as the associate head coach, Um, longtime pitching coach, longtime recruiting coordinator. He's not only worked at Arizona, but he's worked at USC. He worked at USC for about seven years. He worked at Cal for a decade. He worked at Nevada for a couple of years as well. Spent some time in there between USC and Nevada coaching high school and being a high school athletic director in the state of California. Has incredible ties to the West Coast. Um, To go along with the incredible ties that Kirk Sarlos and TJ Bruce both have to the West Coast. I say all of that to say this. There is definitely some intentionality. And I I have not talked to the current coaches at TCU about this, but you can kind of read what's happening when you start to see the transfer migration from West to East. Now starting to see a coaching migration from West to East. It's not just Dave Lawn. Jay Johnson left Arizona a couple of years ago to go to LSU. And now he just won a head coaching or won a national title in his second year as the head coach at LSU. Um, It is not in my estimation, 
uh, a coincidence that TCU is putting together arguably the staff best equipped to recruit elite talent from the West Coast. We're starting to see it. I mean, look at the number of California kids that were on the roster as true freshmen this past year. Look at the number of California kids that are coming in in the portal now. Like homegrown California products that maybe played baseball elsewhere, right? They got a kid last week, Kyle Ayers. He's transferring in from Houston, but he's an L.A. kid. He's an L.A. product. He spent his first year of college at L.A. Valley Community College. Uh, he connected with Kirk Sarlos because they were both from around the same area in LA. And, you know, this is, this is by design. This has to be by design for TCU baseball to be building a staff and building a program that is going to be somewhat reliant on West coast talent as the universities on the West coast are struggling to hold on to their talent. How much of this do you think, too, it's not only just the struggling to hold on to the talent, um, it's the investment in baseball is so much mm-hmm. more significant in right now in the South than it is maybe on the West Coast at the collegiate level, at least. Uh, I think that's that's absolutely it. You know, I, when I was talking to Sam Stoutenborough for the first time last summer after he committed to TCU to transfer as a grad transfer, he said that he was really looking forward. And this he, he and qualified. Cal- he, he qualified this different. by saying, like, this isn't a slide against Cal. It's just kind of, you know, baseball takes a baseball takes a backseat to so many other things on the West Coast that there's just not as much interest in the sport at the college level as there used to be. He was really looking forward to playing for a school where baseball means a lot. Yeah. And and you know, then what happened? He got to pitch in front of nine thousand people yeah. in a super regional this year. Like that's such a cool experience for him to get. And that's the kind of experience that TCU can now sell to a bunch of kids, both coming out of high school and entering the transfer portal that is frankly on par with the SEC in ways that a lot of other college baseball programs aren't, right? There are like, I mean, Texas can sell it, but they're about to be an SEC school. Wake can sell it. Um, I'm trying to think of non-SEC schools that can sell this kind of baseball environment. Maybe Virginia. Virginia, sure. East Carolina is probably right around there. But now you're starting to talk about the ACC, which is another really good NC State, right? Another really good um, baseball conference. But if you don't want to move all the way to the East Coast, come to Texas, come to Fort Worth, play in front of 9,000 people in a super regional, have have a legitimate chance to go to Omaha and win a national title. Um, And also, by the way, be coached by people who are from the West coast and understand the West coast culture and uh, understand you as a human being. I mean, it it makes a lot of sense for West coast kids to start to identify TCU as a transfer destination, not only because of Dave Lawn, but because of Kirk Sarlis and TJ Bruce. And now I'm going to circle back around to the actual question you asked Dave Lawn. Yeah. 33 years as a head coach or 33 years as a coach, 25 years of D one baseball experience. Um, most of that as a pitching coach and a recruiting coordinator. So you think, hmm, Kirk Sarlis is the pitching coach at TCU. John Delora is the recruiting coordinator at TCU. What is Dave Lawn going to do? Well, Dave Lawn is also a really good defensive baseball coach. He works a lot with catchers and first basemen. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a real opportunity, I think, for him to take a couple of things off of various coaches' plates or at least assist in a variety of areas with some of the, with pretty much Bruce Sarlos and uh, Delora um, to fill this role and, and really be a collaborative presence 
a very experienced presence as well for a coaching staff that is, you know, on the average, on the younger side, um, when you think about how old these guys are. And so I, 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 you know, I think that I just to TLDR, Dave Lund's a really good addition to the staff because he brings a ton of experience. He's going to be able to maybe help with some of the in-game minutia from a coaching perspective, maybe calling pitches, that kind of thing, working uh, in the midweek with pitchers and defensive infielders and that kind of thing to take some of the load off of Sarlos and TJ Bruce. He's probably going to be able to assist John Delora on the recruiting trail as well. Um, and, and just really provide uh, another great presence in that coaching in that coaching room uh, to help and uh, help get TC over that final hump of, of actually winning a national championship. Yeah. I was going to ask about that and that intentional choice to choose a more veteran guy. I think you answered that really well. When you just look at the youth of the staff, when you talk about someone that you want to be impactful recruiting on the West coast, um, you're not necessarily getting a guy who's going to be super relatable to a bunch of 18, 20 year old <laughs> kids, but um, obviously knows the area, knows the ins and outs at not just the collegiate level, but the high school level as well. It seems like a really smart choice by Kirk Starlus, who continues to just make really shrewd moves that seem very logical and, and forward thinking, even if uh, this one is is uh, not necessarily a move to get younger, cooler, hipper, as Brett Yormark would say, but more veteran and more experienced in a place um, where they could use a little bit of that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that... Um... Yeah, I think you nailed it. I also think that when it comes to that resume from a development standpoint, like he can li- list the guys that he's put in pro baseball. He can mm-hmm. list the guys that he's coached that have won awards uh, at the conference level, right? Like he had the Pac- Pac-12 Defensive Freshman of the Year last year with a yeah. freshman catcher, right? And so, I mean, or two years ago. And, and so he, I mean, not only has he been in the industry for a really long time, and has the recruiting connections that you need from, from a coach to coach connection perspective. But uh, he has a track record of developing players and, and putting players into the league. Now, when you talk about a new coach coming on, often that means that there's some changes on that coaching staff in general. What does this mean for Kyle Winkler? So Kyle Winkler was the volunteer coach this year for TCU. This year uh, coming up is the first year that is going to be uh, baseball coaches, baseball teams are allowed to have three full-time assistants. So this is essentially a new position that's being created by TCU for Dave Lawn um, because the NCAA has approved that third full-time assistant coach. So Dave Lawn isn't necessarily replacing anyone. Um, I do believe that Kyle Winkler was a candidate for this position as well. He's not going to get it, obviously, because Lawn is coming in. But uh, from what I've been told, Winkler is going to stay with TCU baseball, just not in an on-field coaching okay. role. Uh, they they recently had uh, Kevin Knight, who was the f- head for the last five years, had been or last two years, been with TCU for five years. Last two years as the director of player personnel, um, has recently taken a similar position under Wes Johnson's staff at Georgia, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he has departed there, and there's a possibility for Kyle to slide into that role okay. for TCU baseball. So the TCU pitching legend. Uh, and recent volunteer coach, I don't think is going anywhere. Uh, they do have full-time employment for him available. Um, I don't, none of that has been solidified yet uh, as far as I know, but that is kind of, uh, I think the working 
the working understanding at this point is that Kyle Winkler will still be around TC baseball in some capacity, which is good. Right. Cause I mean, he's a young coach. He's trying to learn the industry. He obviously has a lot of talent from a ba- playing baseball perspective and he, he's starting to grow into that coaching role as well. Um, did, did some good stuff with TC baseball's pitchers this year uh, as well. So, so it'd be, it'd be good to keep him around in, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Uh, speaking of, of guys, uh, new roles, TCU kind of got hit hard by the draft as we expected. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys moving on. Um, you see Elijah Nunez, Trey Richardson, Garrett Wright, Luke Savage signed with the Rangers, which I know DFW folks were, were um, excited about. Yes. Um, and, and others kind of move on to their professional baseball career. Obviously we've talked a little bit about the attrition through the portal guys coming in. There's always guys leaving too. Uh, what are you hearing? Any newcomers coming in, any surprising losses? where's TCU baseball's roster sit as we get kind of a little bit closer to the start of fall ball yeah so we talked about Kyle Carr on the last episode getting drafted in the third round by the Yankees he officially signed with the Yankees that wasn't really a surprise to anybody with with the amount of money that you get for signing in the third round um everybody that got drafted by that was already a TCU Horn Frog signed and that wasn't really a, a surprise even Garrett Wright getting drafted in the 20th round he signed with Chicago. That's that's a thing that's happening. Uh, Luke Savage, obviously getting picked up by the Rangers in free agency is awesome. Two guys that weren't... Uh, one guy that wasn't maybe a huge surprise about getting drafted was uh, incoming transfer Riley Bowman. Uh, he's an Abilene Christian kid, really hard-throwing right-handed pitcher. Uh, ended up getting picked up in the third round um, by the Angels. And he told me last week uh, on the on the day of the draft when he got picked that he was going to sign. He has since signed with the Angels, so he won't be coming to TCU. The biggest surprise, though, is Josh Tiedemann, who was one of the top prospects coming out of the state of Arizona, actually from the same high school as Cole Klecker, mm-hmm. um, was drafted in the 13th round by the New York Yankees, and he has signed with the Yankees as well. So the Yankees poaching two potential Horn Frogs from TCU. Um, best of luck to Josh Tiedemann. You know, it's it's funny because, you know, you think about these kids for a brief moment. Oh, there's a possibility that they're going to be at TCU. And then because baseball, the road to playing in Major League Baseball is so long, you tend to, to forget about a lot of these kids by the time they get to the pros. Uh, and it's interesting that on the same weekend that Tiedemann and Bowman both sign and Carr signs as well with their respective MLB teams, another almost frog and Quinn Priester uh, makes his MLB debut with the pirates and absolutely Mm. looks phenomenal. So it's another kind of what could have been situation for TCU baseball. This is a good problem to have. Yeah. If you're a TCU baseball, right? Like the chat and we've, we've talked about the nuances of recruiting at college baseball for a long time. It's, it's, it's harder, I think than any other sport because of the scholarship limits, because you're competing not only with other schools for players, but you're competing with professional baseball, now you've, you're competing with people in the transfer portal as well. A school like TCU needs to raise two NIL dollars to to the one of every big public school, essentially just to keep pace from an NIL perspective. And so uh, the fact that TCU is where they are as a program and on the recruiting trail is a massive testament to the administration, to the fan base, to Kirk Sarlos and his coaching staff, to Jim Schlossnagel and all the work that he did for 17 years here. Uh, to build this program into what it, what it is and and make it a, a competitive competitive program because really unlike any other sport the odds are stacked very much against TCU in this endeavor. Jamie, we are already uh, at the hour mark Oof. on the show, but uh, we did get some uh, questions here from Twitter. 
Um, I think we've covered quite a few of them already. So we may just kind of rapid fire through some of these. I know we said we were going to talk a little bit about Mike Miles, but Mm -hmm. um, our our pal Colin, that dork, um, said he needed some hoops content. Uh, Did Mike deserve a two-way? Obviously he did. Some people don't agree. How are basketball practices going? What's Emmanuel Miller's ceiling? Um, Mike absolutely deserved a two-way. I thought he finished really strong. Mm-hmm. He had he had a couple double-digit scoring. He looked very comfortable, very smooth once he got those jitters off. Um, I like we've talked, I think, at length about how we think he's gonna have a chance to be an impact player in the G League and um, you know, with with the Mavs at some point too. Um, so let's let's talk about E-Man. E-Man's mm-hmm. ceiling. What is what is his the ceiling for for TCU's leader this fall? I think this, gosh, okay. So I think Emmanuel Miller is such an interesting player because he has all of the defined athleticism that you want in this like hybrid three, four defensive three and D kind of guy outside of the three point shooting. And I mean, he shot 39% from three last year, but he didn't, he, he wasn't much of a volume shooter. It was really situational. Um, I think a ceiling for him is to turn himself into a really reliable three and D wing who mm-hmm. is capable of defending guys at the four, four position. I mean, he's, he's about six, 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 seven. Uh, and I, I think that if he can really hone his craft and be a consistent three point shooter, um, you're going to see a totally different Emmanuel Miller this year than you have the past two seasons. We know the kind of defender he is. We know the kind of rebounder he is. We know the kind of leader he is, uh, but if he can if he can be a scorer in one or two more dynamic ways, I think that's really going to elevate his game. Yeah, I, I think he. To me, the ceiling is 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 exactly like you said, great three and D player. But could he be the type of player that can elevate a team? You know, mm. can he can he take over a game? And that's not really been his thing on offense. But if he can be the type of offensive player that can take over moments, whether it's getting hot from outside the arc or whether it's looking more to attack the rim, um, I, I think that's kind of the next step of evolution for him for sure. He's also uh, never had to, right? Like yeah, he's been yeah, playing against he's been playing yeah. with Mike and Damian for the last two years. He hasn't had to do that. But now, you know, you're bringing in a lot of new guys different kind of spread of talent there. Uh, there might be some more opportunity for him to establish himself in that way th- this season. Speaking of new guys, uh, our friend uh, Philip at 1012 podcast, football freshman that will make the biggest impacts for the frogs this season. Cordell Russell wide receiver. I think he's going to have one hell of a season as a, as a freshman um, defensively Marcus Steele, uh, mm-hmm. the big nose tackle out of Garland. I think, I don't think he's going to have a Dom Williams esque, impact on the defense but i do think you're going to see him pretty quickly get into that rotation of defensive linemen uh to to have to get in there and, and make some noise especially when you consider that dom is moving to the edge a little bit more frequently these days uh so those are my two cordell russell and marcus Steele. deal was mentioned by name um by sunny dykes as a guy who looked really good they expect big things um from i think max carroll has a chance i know that linebacker room has picked up quite a bit of depth um but he's a guy that was super impressive in spring ball i think that that he could definitely be an impact player mm-hmm. jonathan uh, Bax, and if you're talking about linebackers Bax is another one as well out of yes Louisiana. yes jonathan Bax, absolutely if you if you kind of want to go both of them um i don't think he's going to be able to break through barring injury so hopefully we don't have to lean a lot on him 
but I know that Cam Cook is, is another mm-hmm. guy who certainly looks the part of a of a college running back right now. Um, other other new guys, we got a question um, about from Toda Hefe. Uh, what's the latest with Dylan Wright? Is he expected uh, to be academically cleared to join the program? Um, and then also which non-TCU coach group impressed you the most at Media Days, which I thought was a, was a good question. That is a good question. So let me just double check because I looked this morning. I don't think Dylan Wright is on the roster yet. He is not. Yeah, I, I was I was checking that. As I well. I'll be I'll be honest. I last I heard, he was still taking care of some stuff in the summer and was going to be here in August for the start of semester. As far as I know, nothing has changed, yeah. and so Dylan Wright is still expected to be on campus. He's still expected to be a part of this team this fall. He's still expected to be a decently sized contributor this fall. I mean, we had the debate who was going to have better season, Dylan Wright or or uh, Savion Williams on the last episode, someone mm-hmm. asked us that question. And uh, as long as he takes care of what he's take, supposed to take care of this summer, I see no reason for him to not be on the roster this upcoming fall. But at this point, that that, next, that next kind of quote-unquote point of yeah. entry to enroll is for the fall semester. So we won't see him on campus until August. Yeah, until he's there, he won't be there. Uh, Non-TCU group uh, that, that was super impressive. Um, I, I think a lot of people are talking about Dave Aranda um, and, and what he was like at Media Days. I, I think it's agreeable uh, to, to mention him. Um, from a player standpoint, you know, I didn't, I didn't really spend a lot of time around the Baylor players, but Aranda was very, uh, it kind of fell on his sword a little bit at the podium, which surprised me. He talked about how he'd made some mistakes and not using the transfer portal how he had he had kind of put some people in positions that maybe they weren't ready for uh, he was very open and that he had to kind of reevaluate his coaching philosophy I thought that was very impressive um and for the second year in a row I'll tell you man watching those Texas Tech players walk around those dudes look big they look strong they look fast um they were very impressive in suits and ties a, a season ago and, and Tech kind of you know won some games surprised some people very impressive in, in suit and ties uh, once again this year. So, I, I, man, I hate to say Texas Tech, but uh, Joey McGuire's got people believing, and and now it's going to be uh, be on him and his guys to to see if they can turn those believers into actualities. I never got uh, information on what flavor of dip Quinn Ewers was carrying <laughs> around in his yeah. back pocket, but there was a very clear dip yes. can outline yes. in his jeans back pocket, and. Um, I still, I still got to figure out what kind of flavor that man's rocking with. And if he's going pouches, we got to have a heart to heart because that's yeah. just soft. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty great. Uh, and then we already answered Eric Sorensen's question about Chase Burns. You gave a lot mm-hmm. of information on that last one. Our friend Colin Burns. Uh, what is your take on the scorch earth strategy? Many folks took towards Texas and Oklahoma. We kind of hit on that a little bit. Yeah. I'm, I'm cool with it. Right. I mean, it's yeah. when we talked Bring about on. this on the last episode, uh, this is uh, people didn't like it from the mountain West didn't like it when TCU was leaving to go to yeah. the big 12 people from the mountain West didn't like the fact that San Diego state thought about leaving out loud uh, the last couple of months. And so it, it comes with the territory. Um, there's going to be a lot of uh, jabbing and a lot of trash talking to the teams that are leaving. You know, that there's going to be extra juice. There was already extra juice every time a school played Texas or Oklahoma. There's even more juice now, I think. More more uh, gas on that fire, if you will, um, with with the realignment that's taking place. But yeah. I'm here for it. I mean, for sure. what, I mean, it's either that or the coaches sit back and give us some sort of bland PC 
oh, well, you know, realignment happens this day and age and it's, you know, they're doing what they feel is best for their school. And we're just trying to focus on us and do what we can to win the conference and blah, blah, blah. No, f- shoot your shot. What do you have to lose? Like, you're not going to see these schools again after this year. Cause Lord knows they're not going to schedule any of you. And that if they see you in a bowl game, they're not going to want to do that either. Uh, so you might as well get your shots in, get your licks in on the field this fall yeah. and then go your, go your separate ways. Well, Jamie, with that, I think it's time for us to go our separate ways for this podcast recording, at least, as, as we have once again surpassed the uh, the 60-minute mark. We want to uh, shout out our friends at Home Field Apparel for sponsoring our show and the Republic of Football and Dave Campbell's. We want to shout out Dave Campbell's Texas Football. Uh, great to connect with a lot of those guys in person last week as well. I got to, to sit in on a show. I think you got to talk to them a little bit, too. It was, it was a lot of fun to be um, on on the ground with with our friends at Dave Campbell's, I met uh, Gambling Gauchos, uh, that duo, and that was a life changing, <laughs> altering experience. Um, so we love being a part of the Republic of Football Network. Love being a part of Dave Campbell's Texas Football. Uh, just a really really cool thing. A lot of great shows um, across the network. If you're interested in any Division One football team in the state of Texas, Republic of Football Network on Dave Campbell's Texas Football is a place to go. Listen to people talk about it, including our show frogs insider and again frogs in 15 is uh the code to save you 15 percent at home field apparel uh with that this has been the frogs insider podcast on the dave campbell's republic of football network i am most tree bosser joined as always by jamie plunkett thanks for listening be sure to like subscribe rate review all of the things to help us out uh, we love doing this we are so excited to have real football stuff to talk about so very soon Bauer's so excited that he is squeaking his toy because he's saying let's go for a walk mom it's no longer 100 degrees go so frogs. i'm gonna do that we'll go see frogs. you later go frogs